the weekly show with David J. Maloney. This week, David chats with David Page of Toto. And now, here's your host, David J. Maloney. Our featured guest tonight is responsible for some of the most famous songs of his era, and as founding member of the band Toto, he has ensured his imprint on music history will never be forgotten, not to mention his output as a studio musician for some of the biggest names in music history. Here to chat about all his wonderful years in the band Toto and his new debut solo album, Forgotten Toys, is none other than Toto founding member David Page. David, welcome to the show. Hey, how are you out there? Doing dandy. So I know creativity runs in your family. How much influence would you say your dad had on the kind of artist that you became? My father had a lot to do with uh, what I became. Uh, he had a major influence in me when I was young. He was a jazz pianist. So from the age of five on, I can remember hearing him play jazz piano while he was writing arrangements for people like Ella Fitzgerald, Mel Torme, and uh, uh, Ray Charles. So uh, it was around the house all the time and really good music too that was popular. Uh, it was on the radio. You could hear it. And so uh, I got tuned into the radio and how to make uh, records for uh, uh, the radio and uh, just in general, great music through my father, who was a really a legend uh, as a, a, a ranger, as an orchestra arranger. And uh, um, I can say he was, I, I studied under his tutelage for many years, uh, watching him write arrangements and helping him out. And uh it was a magical experience. Now, like you said, he was, he was pretty much a legend in jazz. I'm curious if there was any particular reason why you didn't follow in that genre specifically. It required a certain amount of dexterity and commitment. I was uh, more into rock and roll uh, and I was dabbling to jazz, but you have to play jazz 24 seven to be a good jazz player. So uh, I didn't have that commit. I didn't have that commitment. And, uh, uh, but I still love playing, dabbling in jazz to this very day. I still practice piano and still play a little bit of jazz, but I, I didn't want to do anything I couldn't be really great at. And I knew that I could, I knew for some reason I couldn't master the art of jazz piano playing. So I, I delved into, jumped into rock and roll with both feet. Was your dad ever concerned about you being a musician as well? Or did he know that you'd kind of find a way to be able to support yourself like he did? He was very, very concerned uh, because he's a professional and, uh, you know, professional as a professional, he didn't want to have to be uh, making excuses for his son who wasn't a go very good player, you know? So he, uh, he had a look, a few serious talks with me about knuckling down and uh, just taking the piano lessons seriously. So I studied uh, classical piano for four or five years, uh, playing seven days a week, three hours a day practicing. And uh, this helped me to, to achieve a sound and a dynamic that I wouldn't have had before. And also technique helped my technique. So I was able to play on records. By the time I got out of high school, I was doing sessions. So, and, and like you said, your father really did work with some of the biggest names of his era. What did that make life like for you as a kid? I mean, did you comprehend how special it all was or did it just feel like normal life as a kid because you didn't know any different? It felt like normal life, but occasionally there were special circumstances where my dad would be called to say the Greek theater and they would, uh, uh, someone would be in concert like a Sammy Davis Jr. 
and they put a spotlight on my father. So I knew that he was a very important man. They made him stand up, stand up out of the audience. But uh, other than that, he was just our, my father. And uh, I used to sharpen his pencils and uh, make sure he had plenty of erasers and kept quiet most of the time. I was in the room with him. Now, now, did I get this right that you, the uh, Parcaros and Steve Lukather all went to the same high school? I mean, were you guys friends in high school? They all went to the same high school. I went to a different high school. I went to a place okay. called Chaminade, which was an all boys college prep school in the West Valley. Well, they were in the Eastern uh, mid, mid Valley, uh, went to Grant High School, all the rest of the Parcaros and Lukather. And then each of you guys, as I understand it, had some of your own successes prior to Toto. And, and I, I know you were involved with Boss Gag's five-time platinum album, Silk Degrees. How did that opportunity get, come about? That happened thanks, you, thanks to Jeff Percaro, who I'm very grateful for. Uh, he was, Boss Gags was producing an album by a guitarist named Les Dudek, who played with the Allman Brothers. And uh, it was a blues album, and they needed a keyboard player. So... Jeff, who was my friend, and we played a lot together, been, had been doing some sessions, uh, recommended me. And that's how I met Boss Skaggs, who was looking to do a collaboration on his next album. And I raised my hand for him, volunteered, and Jeff uh, told him that I was, would be the, the best candidate for uh, a, a collaboration. So we sat down at a piano, a grand piano, and wrote most of the Silk Degrees album. When was the first time you guys talked about putting your own band together, for, you know, putting together Toto? We always talked about it when we left high school and Jeff and I went on the road uh, with other artists. We talked about putting the band back together someday, the high school band, you know, or having a band uh, of some sort, some configuration. So uh, uh, as we kept playing on the road, we, we met David Hungate, and then we brought uh, Steve Percaro in, who's traveling with Gary Wright. We brought him in, and we were the Boss Skaggs backing band for a while, um, which uh, entailed uh, uh, myself, Jeff Percaro, uh, David Hungate, and Steve uh, Percaro. So we had a little bit, uh, uh, a few of the components for Toto right there. And then after that album hit big, I decided like a natural evolution uh, to move on to doing our own thing. Um, walk us through Toto One. I, I believe you composed the majority of that album, right? I did because I had. I think I was. I had been writing longer than anybody else, and uh, there were the, the band wasn't hadn't collaborated. We hadn't started collaborating at that point too much. But uh, the uh, the uh, first song, Child's Anthem, came out of my classical upbringing uh, with piano. And so I, I wanted to do something different on Toto. I wanted to start out with an instrumental that kind of gave me the flavor for what was supposed to come. And then we had orchestra on it. My dad conducted the orchestra with French horns and strings. And it was a re really a, 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 major, a powerful event when we did that. And uh, uh, we, we played it live and it went over live very well too. Did, did you feel like when you were writing, what, what your writing was special or did it feel like work at the moment? In other words, did, it, did, it, did you have any inkling that it was as, as you know, going to be as good I, as it I was? Felt like, I felt like it had the potential to be special. And I felt, of course, I hadn't, didn't have a um, um, 
my track record was with Boss Gags before then, but this was, I felt confident that I, we could make these uh, songs come alive because of the musicianship in the band that I had. They were very great and, and brought a lot to the table, you know? Toto 1 and Toto 4 were albums pretty much on constant rotation for me. 4 still blows my mind at what you guys were able to accomplish with that record. You had yeah. a heavy influence on that album. Did anything feel different in the studio working on that record? I mean, did you have any inkling you were making an album that would go like quadruple platinum? We did. The first song that we finished was Rosanna. And that gave us uh, an inkling of uh, what, was, what the, the bar had been set for that record. So, and there was a lot of, I have to say, there's a lot of collaboration on that album too. So you're hearing a diverse, diverse band uh, co-writing together on that album. And uh, it had a lot of different styles on it too, as well. And we were able to use the LSO, the London Symphony Orchestra, on a cut called Afraid of Love, which was to me a, um, a, tr uh, a landmark piece for us. Uh, I think McCartney's uh, Live and Let Die had come out and I'd heard the orchestra on it. And I really was uh, uh, pining to get uh, 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 the LSO on um, uh, the record. And, and I know you had sole writing credit on Rosanna. And, 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 and I want to talk a little bit more about you know, that I, I down later in some of the other questions about, you know, how that song is, is set up and, and the critical claim that it got. What yeah. was the cre what was the creation story of that song? I, I know there have been people who said Rosanna Arquette. Is 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 yeah. that where where that originates from? I used it didn't originate from her. It was originated from another from a, my first high school sweetheart that I had, but I didn't have a name for it yet. I had the whole song written. And Rosanna walked in the room and I met her and I just fell in, you know, she was adorable. And uh, so I, I, like everybody else that met her, had a crush on her. And uh, I used her name because it fit perfect for the song. So uh, that's how that happened. And uh, other than that, I was really influenced by uh, uh, Tom Bell and the Philadelphia sound, like the Spinners and the OJs. Which comes, which is that bridge that goes, not quite a year since she went away. That part right there. Uh, that was influenced, and I wanted to just show a little bit of diversity, diversity in the in the kinds of uh, sections there were as far as the musical musicality of it. And I thought that the band just performed brilliantly uh, with this keyboard solo, Steve Bercaro, myself, and uh, uh, Steve Lugather's guitar solo, and then. Uh, of course, Jeff Carl's wonderful drum intro and in the big jam fest at the very end. And it's interesting because that song does have it's got it's got kind of the keyboard and the guitar solo. And those are things I don't think at that time you heard. I mean, you'd you'd ha have one in a song, but you, I was right. it was one of the first songs that I know that had kind of two. And in that kind of way, I mean, now you have bands like Rush, and, you know, and, and, the YYZ, were, and they'll do all that stuff. Absolutely. In fact, they were right in the middle of the song. Uh, made it different too, you know, but I, but they were so unbelievably musical that uh, it fit, you know. If, if you pull just anyone off the street and ask them to name Toto songs, many would probably just throw out Africa first. What do you yeah. think was the secret sauce in that song? Was it the rhythm, a specific hook? The, a particular I, think I, think the, I think it was the hypnotic rhythm. And I think it was the fact that there was, uh, uh, it, it had some interesting changes harmonically to it. 
I think that it was a little quirky uh, lyrically and uh, uh, different, but people liked the way it sang. And uh, uh, I think there was just something different about it that made it so it wasn't like anybody else you've ever heard. Uh, it was a, almost a global, global music uh, before global music was around. And uh, um, it, I think that's, that's what made its uniqueness. Some don't realize until they actually see Toto live that you sing the verses in the song. How did you guys pick who would sing what on that song? And is it well, true that the song almost didn't make the album? It's true the song almost didn't make the album. Uh, Bobby Kimball was uh, um, recruited to uh, and asked or asked to do the, the chorus vocals because he was the high singer in the band. But everybody else, including Bobby, Lukather, and uh, both tried to do the verses. And it was so wordy and a little bit complicated for their style of singing that I was the only one that could actually sing my own words that I had written. So I was the low man in the totem pole. So I got to sing it. And uh, it's funny how things turn out. You know, that ended up being our number one record. And uh, uh, again, it wasn't uh, supposed to go on the album. It was an 11th hour uh, song that was written. Uh, we had the whole album done. And I, I had came up with this uh, verse and this chorus on Africa and asked Jeff Ricardo to write a special beat for it, a hypnotic beat that would uh, be indicative of South Africa. And uh, he came up with something really special. And uh, uh, again, that album, uh, everybody kept telling me to save it for my solo record, uh, Africa, which is, a, which is a polite way of telling you it's not going on our record, you know? So uh, I'm very happy that it made it. And uh, it's been a, a, um, a real landmark song uh, iconic song in Toto's live repertoire as well. And, and some people think the song has a romantic meaning, but as I understand it, the song is just truly about Africa, correct? Well, yes, but there's some romance involved. There's a guy's, uh, the, I think there's a, the protagonist is discovering himself. And I think he's torn between uh, the con uh, working in Africa and having a, a, a personal life with a, with a mate, finding a mate, you know what I mean? So uh, I think he's uh, conflicted. And uh, that's about all I have to say about that. Is there a particular meaning behind bless the rains down in Africa? Well, the way I got that was because I had gone to about the all boys uh, college prep I'd gone to was run by um, uh, brothers from the seminar. And some of them had been social workers in Africa before they came uh, back uh, to, to California. And they said, uh, I said, what did, what did you do? What was it like down there? And they said, well, we, we would do, go things like bless the village. They bless babies. They bless the crops when they grow. And sometimes they build, if, it, if it wasn't raining and when it finally rained, they'd bless the rain. And so I kind of got that from uh, that message from them. And I thought it was, it just came out when I was singing the song. I just started singing the chorus and these lines just kept, they just kept pouring out of me. So, uh, I just let them, I didn't deny it and uh, let it happen magically. It just kind of flowed. Looking back, which is your personal favorite Toto album? Or is that like kind of trying to choose which child is your favorite? It really is, you know. I'd, I'd be lying if I didn't say I have a 
a personal affinity for the very first album, but I think our finest work to date is on Total Four album. I think is all in all a really great album as albums go. It's, it's a total album, you know, and I think it has good production on it. I think it has, the songs are very good. It's very exemplatory of how Toto sounds, is that album. I, I'm, I'm curious if you knew which album or song was your dad's favorite, being as such an accomplished musician himself. Did he have one? Did he ever tell you? I think he liked uh, Won't Hold You Back. He worked on that with James Newton Howard and myself, and he helped uh, arrange the uh, strings and, uh, and the woodwinds and the harp and all the extra al- instruments mm-hmm. on the, along with James Newton Howard and myself. And uh, I think he loved the fact we used the LSO on it. How did Hold the Line fall into place? Hold the Line fell into place. I had just moved away from home and got my first apartment. And I got, uh, it was really small, so I could only fit a little upright piano in there. And the, the first thing I started playing when I got it was I sat down and started playing the Hold the Line riff. And I must have played it for two or three days because people were pounding on my door to stop playing the, this riff. And so I finally finished writing a little verse for it. And we decided to go down and audition the song to the band who we just hired Bobby Kimball and uh, Lukather was there and David Hungate and Jeff and myself. And we played Hold the Line and we played it just about how it sounds on the record the first time we played it. It sounded good, it sounded just like that. And uh, we knew we had something magical and that song, uh, we should record the song. Looking back, you were in on some of what I would consider some of the greatest studio sessions in history. One that comes in mind involves you, Steve, Paul, McCartney, uh, Michael Jackson, George Martin, Quincy Jones, working on The Girl Is Mine. What sticks out to you about that session in particular? What I remember was Linda McCartney was there and she had a huge camera with a huge, well, small camera with a huge lens on it. And she was shooting right over my shoulder at the session while I was trying to play. She was right to the right of me, shooting right in back of me at everybody. So I remember her and I remember Paul standing around uh, smiling and kind of giving us musical inspiration and, and uh, a couple of little ideas and stuff. Uh, and other than that, I had my head buried in the arrangement and uh it was it was a magical experience. I can't can't deny that. We've I've had, my son had the opportunity to kind of fist bump him once, and usually I'm not phased too much by celebrity. But when you meet somebody like Paul McCartney, it's almost kind of like meeting the Queen, right? I mean, there's there's yeah. a different even even for folks who I mean, you're looked up to. You're somebody who somebody people see as a celebrity. But do you as a celebrity still sometimes see other people? like that i mean like just almost unworldly right yeah absolutely i mean there's people there's colleagues of mine and lots of musicians that that are very casual about seeing stars and and other musicians and stuff i i think they have certain people have that rarefied air that they live in uh your michael jackson is one of them uh paul mccartney whenever you meet a beetle you know you're in the presence of greatness and uh, whenever you meet a Rolling Stone, I feel the same way about that. You know, I got to play, work on Keith Richards' solo record, and that was a real uh, pinch me moment, you know what I mean? A real bucket list thing for me. So I think uh, Elton John has that. I think Cher has that. I think Barbara Streisand has that. So there are the elite of the elite that still 
to me, I feel like a fan, a super fan when I'm with them. And I have to remind myself that I have a job to do and that I'm, I'm working, you know? So, yes, I, I do have people I look up to as stars. I'm sure you've talked ad nauseum about working on the Thriller album with Michael Jackson, so I'm not going to delve too deeply into it. But I would like to know, though, at that time in the studio, did you feel like you were possibly working on one of the biggest albums of all time? I mean, an album that would sell probably uh, more copies we, than any other we album. Knew, we knew it was a good album and it would probably do pretty well, but we had no idea to the extent that it was going to sell 40 million. And now today, I think 70 million <laughs> records uh, to date. And, uh, uh, we, but we all knew that it had this energy and it had great songs from Rod Temperton and uh, every great musician in the world was on it. And Quincy Jones was running the show with Michael. So we knew it was top to bottom. It was going to be great production. And, uh, and I want to say that my band performed brilliantly on it. They played on Human Nature. Uh, that's really the band playing. And also the band on uh, Beat It, which is Steve Lukather on bass guitar and guitar, rhythm guitar, as long with Jeff Percaro. So uh, we feel, I definitely feel we have, we made our mark on the Thriller album and uh, uh, it's uh, a feather in our cap. I think I saw where your dad actually got to eventually meet Michael Jackson with you. What was that kind of experience like? That was a great, the meeting of two professionals, two minds, you know, Michael's a great artist and my father's a great arranger, conductor who knows everybody from Sarah Vaughn to Ella Fitzgerald to even Barbara Streisand. My dad arranged and produced the way we were for Barbara Streisand. Oh, wow. so, so he knew how to, how to coddle Mike or Michael and, and pull, extract the best music out of them. So uh, uh, it was a great relationship. They loved each other. Obviously having walked through much of your biography, you've got more music history, knowledge and know-how than most people could ever hope to achieve. And now you're putting out your first solo album, Forgotten Toys. Um, where did the album name come from? I'm kind of thinking like Billy Joel had songs in the attic. Is it is it that kind of thing? Uh, it was kind of thing where I had, I had always, uh, I heard that I had a title Broken Toys at one time. And that was, I was going to name it song that at first, and that didn't work out. So I decided, well, if I ever do a solo album, I'll name it Broken Toys. But then just as we got into it and started listening to the material, my wife mentioned, she goes, you know, these, that's kind of negative. And those songs are they're not broken songs. They're just forgotten songs. She goes, you should, should call the album Forgotten Toys. So I immediately just hit me like a bullet mm -hmm. in the forehead, boom, uh, that we should change the name to that. And uh, so I blame it all on her. Now, after all these years of doing everything else, you're just putting out your first solo album. What was the impetus that triggered you to, to finally do this? I, a combination of things. I think that my uh, colleagues, uh, Steve Lukather and, Steve, and Joe Williams, were both making solo records because Toto was on a, a, a kind of a sabbatical and uh, wasn't making music uh, uh, recording anyway at that time. And so they were working on their albums and I helped them with their albums. And Joe and Luke said, uh, they pushed me and, and, and nudged me and they said, you, you need to do a solo record and get some of these other odds and ends that you've been playing us for years, get them out and, and write some words and lyrics to them, uh, write some lyrics and melodies to them. So uh, I, I got with Joe Williams who co-produced the record with me. And uh, 
he helped me start laying the blueprints down and uh, it just became fun to work on every day. And I did it for during the uh, COVID uh, pandemic, which is still out there now, but it was during the, the height of the, the intense two year period there, you know. What excited you the most about making this, this record in particular? I think hearing hearing the the incredible musicians come in and add their uh, energy to it, add their live playing after you make after you kind of make a blueprint demo that's just a skeleton of what you want, so the musicians can play to it. After when they actually play on it, you see why people hire these music these premier musicians because of their contributions to music and and how they uh, you don't have to produce them; they produce themselves. And you've got a literal who's who of co-creators on the record. Did you feel kind of like a mastermind putting together like the A-team on this? No, I just felt like my normal self uh, using uh-huh. uh, my, my Rolodex. Of course, people don't know what a Rolodex is anymore, but uh, uh, my <laughs> your uh, list and your, and your yeah, iPhone. Yeah, my my yeah. list. Uh, right. uh, I just called, these are all my friends, and most of them called me when they found out I was doing a solo record and asked that they could be on the record. So I... Uh, obliged a few of them and a couple others i i called myself and convinced them they needed to to do this record and so uh it was a combination but they were all friends and all willing to just uh, help when they uh whatever i needed uh same with don felder uh ex-eagle guitarist uh uh, hotel california he played slide great slide guitar on uh, uh queen charade and uh mike mcdonald sang on uh, spirit of the moonrise and uh you know, Nathan East is playing, Luther's playing. It's a, it's a one big happy family. There was a point in time where Michael McDonald, I think, was like in almost every song on the radio. I know. I know. <laughs> You'd hear was. him backing like Christopher it. Cross I, and like everybody. No, I still listen to him. I think yeah. he still is. Yeah. I really do, you know. Um, I know each song on the album has kind of a different origin story. Do any of these songs have an origin story from your time in Toto? Uh, no. Not really. Um, I mean, we've totally been making records and I had some of these pieces lying around, but I didn't have any these songs around except for Lucy. I had that instrumental around for several years longer than the rest of the stuff because I'd been working on an instrumental album with another uh, great session player named Mike Lang, who just recently passed away. And uh, uh, him and I were going to put out a duet album of some stuff. Well, we never get got that far, but I salvaged the song Lucy because I, I thought it was demonstrative of me of my collaboration again with another fellow uh, uh, teammate and making music. And I thought it was worthy of being on my EP. One of the songs that really stuck out to me was All the Tears That Shine, which was done with your friends, Michael and, and Billy Sherwood of, of yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. What does that song mean to you and how did it come about? That song, I, it came about on the day we finished the Falling In Between record back in 2005, I think it was. I started writing again. I always do that. when we, The day we finish an album, I realize what I could have done, and I start writing for the new, a new album. So I started writing the, the opening verse to uh, All the Tears That Shine. And uh, eventually I got back to it, and uh, the song means uh, has to do with closure. I think, you know, in a relationship. And Michael, I called Michael Sherwood in because him and I, we kind of finish each other's sentences. And uh, he's, uh, I have history with him. 
and he's very shorthand, a lot of shorthand involved when you when I write with him. And plus, is he such got such an incredible sounding voice that uh, he, he that was the demo that we did. The, his vocal was anyway on it. So I just wanted to preserve that and honor him by uh, putting that version out so people could hear uh, how we what it sounded like when we conceived the song. Your daughter has a credit and sings on first time. How did she get involved? I understand she sort of did it on her own, no? She did. I was working on that song and uh, she snuck in the studio with my engineer and put it up and put her vocal on it. Said, I did an overdub on your thing. And I was kind of in shock. What do you mean you're working on my solo record without me in there? How dare you? You know? And then I just laughed and I heard her part and it melted my heart. So, uh, I just loved it. She wanted kind of a present to me, a gift to me about a song that I wrote about myself and her, mainly about her. What was the most challenging aspect of making this record from a creative standpoint? I mean, was there a particular song that that stumped you for a little bit or did it all just kind of fall into place? Uh, it was all kind of fell into place. It was all challenging because the challenge is, is when us professional musicians are working. A lot of times we work without being in a room full of musicians. A lot of time it's overdubbing singly and the best musicians, the key to doing really good music is to make it sound like you were all in the room together. And that's the key. That's why I hire or, or ask favors of all my friends that bring, that bring this to the table. So uh, I think that was the, 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 the most challenging thing is in making sure that everything felt connected and live and uh, played spontaneously, you know? And uh, I think uh, it pretty much achieved that. Uh, for those who want to get a real taste of the record, what song or songs would you point them to specifically? I'd say, Will I Belong to You, uh, Queen Charade, and Lucy are probably my top three. Well, I know we're going to feature uh, Will Belong to You um, later in the show. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that song and, and what it means to you? Yeah, that song kind of takes me back to my days of listening to uh, when I was uh, used to listen to Simon and Garfunkel a lot and a lot of Paul McCartney solo record stuff. And I like this uh, kind of serendipitous kind of uh, uh folk guitar kind of thing in the verses that I came up with and some lyrics, but still it was a conflicted relationship where, where uh, he, he gets in his own mind, he's got the girl, but she doesn't understand. She's not aware of it. So uh, it's a little bit of a paradox. And uh, 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 Joseph had the chorus written. So I said, I immediately, as soon as I heard that chorus, I said, I need to write the rest of the song here. So I got, wrote the verses, and then him and I connected the verses with instrumental fabric. Uh, and uh, uh, it just turned out, I thought it turned out very special. Now, it's, it's, a, it's a great album overall. Um, and I know Toto will be touring in early 2023 and getting kind of close to us here on the Gulf Coast when in Louisiana in February. Are you right. or Toto playing any gigs before then? Not really. Not that I know of, but Toto's going to be filling in dates around the journey date. So there may be some off, some closer things than are on the calendar right now for, for Toto, just to solo Toto act. 
Because a lot of times when you guys tour, you have kind of a, an initial skeleton to this tour. And then as you're doing venues, you know, you add venues along the way, right? That that's makes what, sense to what, fill the gaps. Gonna be happening. That's going to be happening right just now that with the journey dates are set. They'll, go, they'll fill in dates around those counties and stuff. Now, I know Steve has or had been doing some gigs as part of Ringo Starr's All-Star Band, yeah? Yes, yes. Yeah, and he performs, uh, actually, they perform Rosanna and they perform uh, uh, Hold the Line live still so with that, So, which I'm, uh, I, I'm ecstatic about the fact that Ringo Drums plays drums on those two songs, okay? That's like a pinch me moment right there. Yeah, yeah and, really uh, yeah. Uh, Luca, there's, he's the band lead. I mean, he's the, he's the driving force behind that band. Uh, that's what Jim Keldner says. Uh, Jim should know. And uh, it's, it's a great band and it's a great show. I highly recommend it if you get a chance to see it. I, I've, I've seen them a couple of times, uh, one in an indoor venue, one in an outdoor venue, both fantastic. And the way that they put people together, you know, I know. Uh, I know. It's, not boring. it's like seeing six different artists, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, you get to see like Todd Rundgren and, you know, it, yeah. I mean, it changes periodically. It's not always yeah. the same. But yeah. I mean, for a while it was Todd Rundgren and I think Colin Hay from Men at yeah. Work. They have Colin Hay now and they have Edgar Winter and they have Hamish Stewart from Average White Band. Yep. You know? Yeah. No, I they mean, it's, it's Richard Page, which is really great. Yes. Yeah, yeah, phenomenal. Mean, it really is cool. Um, that's why I grabbed, I grabbed Greg Bissonette from that band to play drums on two of the records. Do you have anything else coming up or projects in the works, or are you going to be taking a little break before this upcoming Toto tour? I'm currently involved in helping uh, the Eastman School of Music back in New York. They're archiving my father's arrangements, and they're using them for curriculum back there as a class to teach. And they're starting a vocal department, so I just uh, scanned, had uh, uh, about a dozen arrangements scanned for vocalist and string orchestra uh, and send him back to Rochester School of Music because yeah. they're going to perform him and record him and, and start make, doing classes with these arrangements. So uh, I'm, it's a little bit of, uh, uh, you know, and a little bit of altruism involved in my life right now. And I like to think of it anyway, and, uh, and helping, helping the undergraduates come up, helping the guy behind you uh, stand on your shoulders, you know, so they can uh, keep jazz alive, you know. And, and where can people go to follow you and Toto on various social media platforms? They can go on, I'm having a website built right now, by the way. I know I'm way behind the curve here, but you can go on probably the uh, uh, Toto website or you can follow along on, I do uh, Instagram and TikTok. Um. So you mentioned Eastman School of Music. Are you going to be going to Rochester at all when you um, for that, or are you doing it? I won't be going for that, but I may end up visiting Rochester School of Music sometime next year to play a little something. Yeah, the reason why I ask is I went to undergrad in Rochester and actually, believe it or not, lived in an apartment on East Avenue when I was there, right up the street, really? literally right up the street from the college. And there are wow. a couple of things you need to try out if you go to Rochester. One of them is a Nick, something called okay. a garbage plate at Nick Tahoe's. It will, it's, it's, it's one garbage of those things, plate. it's called the garbage plate, but it is fantastic. Another thing is Abbott's custard. Is an, it's an ice cream place, but it's actually custard. There's Rochester is an interesting. Custard. 
Yeah, Rochester is an interesting season. They only have not interesting season. It's an interesting town. They only have three seasons, winter, spring and road repair. But <laughs> but they have some fantastic food that if you know where to go. Right. And it's one of those things where but the garbage plate and Abbott's custard, uh, those are kind well, of the we'll two big that. things. And um, Sal's Birdland, if you're into chicken wings, um, yeah. Those are the things, but but if you go, those are the places. Those are the places. I, I hope you're not winding me up, and I'm going to go in there and say I want the garbage plate. No, no, no. The garbage. Okay. On there. The garbage plate is one of those things. It's kind of like you know how there's a certain people who go get the the, the Waffle House becomes attractive at a certain time of the night. Yeah, it's like well, meet meet three meet and three in Nashville. You know they yes. call it. So it what the garbage plate is is they is they take. Um, uh, home fries, which is basically the chopped up potatoes and onions, then wow. they grill those. They take fresh macaroni salad, mayonnaise kind, not vinegar type. They put them side by side. They then take two hot dogs, slice them down the middle and, and do them butterflied, grill them butterflied, throw them on there, throw some chopped onions and then throw kind of a spicy meat gravy on it, some spicy mustard. And it's all on top of everything. And you'd go, oh my God, this is going to destroy me. And then you taste it and you go like, okay. And it becomes like a White Castle hamburger where you have it and you go, wait a minute, it's so bad that it's good, but it's actually great. And then you'll crave it from time to time. I tr trust me on this. Yeah, right. If you have it the first time, you'll order it online and have them ship it to you like once every six months. It's one I'm, of those- I'm, I'm you're making me hungry. You're making me hungry right there. There you I'll go. <laughs> David, it's been an absolute pleasure. And I really want to thank you so much for joining us. Ladies and gentlemen, David Page. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. And I just want to say uh, how grateful we are to all, all the fans and friends and family out there. Uh, we couldn't have done it without you. Toto's very blessed and we count our blessings every day and uh, we love our fans and uh, God bless all of you. Well, and I know they love you too. <laughs>